All right, let's get started. Uh, today we are continuing. We're on part seven of a series called Fitting In. And today we're looking at an entire chapter, chapter 14 of the book of Acts. And uh, we have a few more weeks to go, and then we're going to go into a two-part sermon series on Lent, and then we're going to have Easter. So uh, we have a lot going on. But so far in the book of Acts, we've been talking about how there's been a lot of movement in the church. The church was birthed in the beginning of book of Acts, and then over time, they became more and more established. And now we have some people, like people like Paul the Apostle and Barnabas, they're traveling around telling people about Jesus. Now, here's the issue with this Jesus movement. Okay, there is an issue. There's something they don't know and they have to test to make sure they know. The issue is this. Christianity, as they call it now in this story, was originally founded by a Jewish carpenter who was also a rabbi. And so the question is, how far does this ripple go? Like, it might have worked in Israel, but maybe it won't work in France, or maybe it won't work in Alaska, maybe it won't work in Africa. We don't know, right? So, so the question is this. This is a question they're trying to figure out, is how big is this story? I mean, right? Like, is this story just as good as, you know, in, in Israel, or is it good somewhere else, right? Because, like I said, this is a story about a Jewish carpenter rabbi. So, like, does, do we have any business talking about this person in other parts of the world? So, Paul and Barnabas are sent by the church to around the world. So they go on several trips. We're still in the beginning of the middle of the first trip, and today we're going to conclude that trip. So as a recap, this is the trip that they've taken so far. So here's the map of the Mediterranean Sea. This is the east coast. This is a place called Antioch. And from Antioch, they go over to this island right here called Cyprus. They head north, and they get to this place called Pisidian Antioch, not to be confused with the first Antioch. And while they were here, they preached the, you know, they said, hey, let me tell you about, and well, first they go to a Jewish synagogue because synagogues is where it's a low-hanging fruit because Paul is Jewish, Barnabas is Jewish. So they go to a place called Pisidian Antioch, which is a Gentile place but they first go to a synagogue where they know there's a bunch of Jewish people there. And so they go there and they start quoting a bunch of Old Testament scriptures. If you guys were here last week, that's, you know, that's what we talked about. And they, they're like, we love this stuff, just tell us more. And the more they told them about the Old Testament and how it connects to Jesus, the more they were like getting jealous because there's a bigger crowd, bigger crowd. And they're like, this isn't cool that these two guys who came in here is getting a bigger crowd than the synagogue. And so they started kind of not liking him and so they start throwing insults at him. They start, the word that they use in the book of Acts is they started abusing them, right? And so they're like, okay, we're not wanted here. So they leave. So from here, we go to our next destination, which is a little more to the east in a place called Iconium. Iconium. So today we're picking up our story here in Iconium. Paul and Barnabas are there. And um, as they move along in this journey, the place becomes less and less Jewish, okay? So right now we're at a place, again, they're gonna go to a Jewish synagogue first, but the crowd is smaller. So let's read chapter 14, verse one. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed because at the synagogue, there are Jews, of course, but there are also Greeks who are interested. They're like, hey, we might wanna convert over to Judaism, so we're here. Okay, and it turns out a lot of people believe. Now, the word believed here in this verse right now, in their context, it means to embrace of story. So let me give you an example of what that is, okay? If somebody in the Bible says so-and-so believed, what that really means is it was verified and embraced. Verified and embraced. So I'll give you an example. If, if I were to come here and tell you something, first you have to verify it. 
based on everything I know about my life, my experience, what I've been taught through my life, that story checks out with me, okay? And because I, 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 I understand this story to be true, I am gonna embrace this story. What that means is, if there's a story that's being told, I choose to join in that story and live according to it. So if the story says, hey, God loves you and that God wants to spread this love to the world and he wants to save humanity, you're gonna say, because I verified it, I'm now gonna step into the story and participate in it. That's what belief means. So these people, when Paul and Barnabas came and they told their story, they're like, yes, I verify that that story is true and I choose to be a part of that story from this day on. Okay, so that's what's happened so far. But, next verse, the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brothers. So at this point, they're saying this. There's some people who say, yes, I embrace that story, but there are other people who are saying, no, we want nothing to do with it. And now, at this point, remember, this story is being told from the perspective of Christians, right? Luke is writing this story. He's recording this story as it's happening, right? And because he's Christian, there's a bias to this story. So when you're hearing this story, I don't want anybody here to think those Jews are the bad guys in this story, because they're not. Because there's a context to their story too. The reason why they're refusing this, refusing to embrace the story, is completely understandable. So for the past few hundred years of the story, leading up to this point in, this, in the book of Acts, the Jews have been under persecution by several different groups of people. So like, they were attacked by these groups of people called Assyrians, and then the Babylonians came, then the Persians came, then the Greeks came, then the Romans came. And because of that, they kept on getting attacked. They all had to disperse from their homeland of Israel, and they spread to the world. So here's a little map over here. Over here, down here, is Jerusalem. If you can't see, you have to take my word for it, right? Israel and Jerusalem over here. And if you look at all these arrows, it just, and all these black dots, if you can't see it, you could take a look at it later um, online. But you can see that they went all around the world. They were all dispersed. And this is called the diaspora or diaspora. Don't know which one. I've heard both. Okay. And so when they're like, so for example, if they spread through the world and they end up around here, right? This is Iconium right there. They're far away from home. But they're Jews. And Jews are people who claim are the chosen people of God. So what do they do? They have to hold on to everything that they learn as children. And when they die, they have to pass that on to the next generation and they have to hold on to everything that they learn from their parents. And when that generation dies, that next generation has to embrace the story that was passed on to them. So they'll do everything to hold on to tradition. They'll do everything they can to memorize the scriptures that were given to them. They'll do everything they can to hold on to their culture. And now, right, remember they're living in Gentile land right now. They have this small community called the synagogue and they attend there as much as they can because that's where they know they're gonna meet other Jews and this is where they're gonna embrace and reinforce their culture, their texts, their, their, um, their traditions. They're doing everything they can to maintain their identity. And when they leave the, the synagogue, there's all these other people who are from different parts of the world that's trying to dilute their identity. And now we have these two people called Paul and Barnabas who come to their synagogue and they're Jews. So like, oh, you're one of us. Go ahead and preach. And when they preach, they're saying things that doesn't make sense to them. Like, what do you mean we should mingle with more people? What do you mean we're tearing down the walls? What do you mean that God loves everybody? What do you mean everybody's chosen now? 
I thought we were the chosen people. I thought we weren't supposed to mingle with the people who aren't like, with us, like, like us. And so if you look at it from the perspective of the Jews, it's totally understandable why they said, we want nothing to do with what Paul and Barnabas is preaching, right? Here is a commentary from a very smart um, scholar. His name is Willie Jennings, uh, James Jennings. This is what he says. We must remember the anxiety of the diaspora, the loss of identity, and the confusion of peoples. Paul and Barnabas announced mixture and a theological cosmopolitanism. Next slide. That brings the bodies of Jews next to the bodies of Gentiles precisely in an intimate holy space, the space where God is to be known and worshiped. He's like, these guys are coming, like Paul and Barnabas showed up at their doorstep and said, hey, I know you're trying to keep yourself pure from the other people who aren't like you. Well, we're here to bring everybody in. And they're like, wait, wait a minute. You're compromising our identity. And then Dr. Jennings says this. This is the logic of those trapped in this fear of loss of identity, story, and even of faith. We're losing who we are if we accept this thing called Christianity. And so it is obvious to me, at least, maybe to you too, that they would say, no, we want nothing to do with this story. Some people were like, yes, we want to embrace that story, but other people are like, we verified it, but we still don't want to be a part of it. And it's understandable. And this should be a lesson to us, right? That we shouldn't be forcing our faith onto other people because for them, it might be a matter of identity. You know, and maybe one day they'll come around, but at that point, it's just, we're just asking too much for out of them, right? So the point that he's trying to make here, Lucas trying to make here is this, that the exclusivity of Judaism was the source of their identity. These people believed that God chose them and nobody else. We're exclusive. We're exclusive club, and you're asking us to mingle with the people who are on the outside. We can't do that, Paul. Barnabas, I know, you know, like, you look like a nice, huggable guy, because traditionally, Barnabas is known as the bigger of the two, right? He's like... you seem like a nice guy, but we just can't accept your message because it's asking too much of us. So what do they do? Well, Paul and Barnabas, next slide, spent considerable time there because they realized it's going to take a lot of time to convince these people, speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the messages of his grace, grace meaning God is generous, God is loving, God is opening up the doors for everybody to join in on this movement, right? The message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. Not only were they, te- they teaching just mind groundbreaking teachings about how God is now for everybody, they were able to verify that through doing miracles, but they're like, no, we, we, we don't want anything to do with this. So the people, next slide, the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. It wasn't like Paul and Barnabas came over and said, let's create a us versus them mindset. Paul and Barnabas showed up to say, we want everybody to be on the same side. But then there were people who were like, no, we don't want everybody to be on the same side. So it inevitably created a us versus them. But that wasn't their intention. They couldn't let go of their culture and that was totally understandable. So, next slide. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them, meaning they're gonna throw stones at them and eventually kill them. Right? So they're like, we can't have Paul and Barnabas messing up with our tradition, with our culture, with our identity. So let's get rid of them, even if we have to kill them. This is how important it was to them. So do you think Paul and Barnabas stuck around? No, because this is what it says next. But they found out about this scheme and fled to the, okay, I practice this. It's 
Lysaonian, it's not Lyconian, it's, it's pronounced Lysaonian cities of Lystra and Derby and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. So they ran away. They're like, we can't stay here. We're going to be killed if we stay here. So they ran away, and let's, let's get the map where they are now. So they went from Iconium, they went to Lystra, which is about 30 miles, which is about a 10-hour walk. So a whole day walk, right? And when they got there, they realized there are less Jews there because there's no mention of synagogues in this story, in this story right here. And then the next verse is, it tells us that Paul and Barnabas showed up, and the first thing they saw was a person who couldn't walk. He was, he was lame from birth, that's what it says. And so they're like, this is a great time to show everybody the power of God. So they pray over this guy, and he starts walking. And everyone's like, whoa, did you see that? That guy, we know that guy. He, he was born this way, and now look, he's walking around, dancing around. And so they, they immediately got everybody's attention, okay? And then this is what happened. This is not what Paul and Barnabas wanted to happen, but this is what happens. When the crowd saw that Paul, uh, what Paul had done, they shouted in the Ly- Lysaonian language that gods have come down to us in human form. The gods have come down to us in human form. What are they talking about? They just did some miracle and all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, these guys must be gods. Specifically, they're thinking that these two guys, Paul and Barnabas, is Zeus and Hermes. And the reason they thought that is because of this guy right here. This is a Roman poet, his name is Ovid. I know it looks like COVID without the C, so let's not think about that. It's Ovid. Okay, and Ovid is a poet who told a story once of Zeus and Hermes putting on human form and disguise, and um, they visited this village, and they were looking for people to be hospitable to them. So they went from house to house, and the story says that they visited a thousand homes, and nobody welcomed them into their house or gave them any food until they came to this old couple They were very simple, very poor. They let them in, they fed them, they gave them a bed and they let them sleep and they took care of them until one day the couple figured out that this might be Zeus and Hermes. And when they figured it out, they're like, okay, you got us. So Zeus and and Hermes took the two, took him up to a high place and he said, now watch this. And he flooded the entire village for not being hospitable to them, saving the two people. And then after that, they went to their house, their little hut, you know, and he transformed that little hut into a big temple made out of marble. That's the story. So this is a story that these people have been listening to. And so they see a guy do a miracle and they're like, oh, you must be Zeus and Hermes. So that's the, this, is the, this is why they're thinking this. So Barnabas, <clears throat> they called Zeus because he was the bigger of the two. And they, Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker because Hermes in Greek mythology is the messenger. Okay, so they're like, oh, the short one, you must be Hermes, the one that talks a lot. You, the big cuddly guy, you must be Zeus. You know, like that's, that's the logic right there. Okay, and they're like, okay, maybe this thing will die down because, you know, we don't want them to think that we're divine or anything. And just when they thought they could calm it down, this happens. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Now, let's contrast this to Iconium like just a day ago. While they were there and teaching what they were there to teach, they wanted to kill him. They show up at this place and they're all praising him. They're like, oh, here, here's some, here's bull, and here's, here's a wreath, you know, we're here to worship you. I mean, it is so different, right? And at this point, Paul and Barnabas are like, why are these people more accepting of us than the people back there? Because we did miracles back there. We did miracles over here. Here they love us, over there they hate us. Well, let's keep reading. But when the apostles, apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd and they were shouting. Okay, 
So once they were called, you know, once they were called Zeus and Hermes, like, you're gods, you're divine, they're like, no, we are not. And they start tearing their clothes. Now, there's two interpretations for this, and you could choose whichever one you think is right. The first interpretation is that it's a very Jewish thing to do. When you're grieving in your heart, you want to bring that on the outside to display it by tearing your, like, my heart is broken, so you tear your clothes to show that you are broken on the inside. But these people are not Jewish. They wouldn't understand that gesture. So the second interpretation of this right here is that if you are familiar with with Greek statues of gods and goddesses, you'll know that they have like the perfect body, right? So they're like, they like tore their clothes, like, look at this flab. I am not Zeus. I am not Hermes. And the next verse actually supports that. It says this, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. Like he's like, look, look, does this look godly to you? Right? And then he says, we are bringing you good news. What is the good news? God is generous. God is opening up the doors for everybody. Everybody is welcomed into the kingdom. Nobody is excluded, right? We're here to bring the good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Now, that's offensive when he's like, everything you've been worshiping until now is worthless. I mean, the word in the Greek right there is the word empty. Like, everything you've been worshiping until now is empty. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they're trying to make a point very subtly here, okay? And so, um, maybe you don't get it from this text, but this, I'll try to show the subtly that's happening here. In Paul's mind, he thinks that everybody in the world has received a part of God in their daily lives. So when these people are worshiping Zeus and Athena and Hermes and Poseidon and all these other gods, they're thinking, like, you were close. Like, you picked up on the clues here and there and you thought you were worshiping your God. But, you see, you got a glimpse of God and you made a whole statue just because of that little, like, you got a little information and you went off of that and this is what you ended up with. A pantheon of gods, right? But what I'm here to tell you is, is that our God is the one that is above all those gods. You just received a little bit of it and so you created this whole thing, this whole religion out of it. But this is just a piece of it. What you're worshiping right now are just stones and statues. So what, what, is Paul in, what is Paul trying to tell these guys? This is what he's saying. He's saying that we are all equals. We are all equals. The reason you start worshiping us is because you believe that there is some kind of hierarchy. You think that, that Caesar is greater than you. You think that these priests are higher than you. You think we are higher than you. But when, when Jesus came to this earth, he made it clear that everything is equal. At the foot of the cross, it's level ground. So like, you don't have to worship us because we did a miracle. We're all equal. You don't have to get on your knees and, and bring us a, 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 a sacrifice bull because we're all equal. We are people just like you. This is what he's saying right here. The only one that is worthy of our worship is Jesus. Then verse 15, he says, God made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. Now, Paul's saying something really interesting here. He's saying, when it comes to the heavens, will you believe that the heavens is ruled by Zeus? Right? You call it Zeus. We believe our God created heaven. Right here, the earth. You believe that there's a God that controls the earth. You believe there's a God that controls the sea, Poseidon, right? Well, guess what? Jesus, our God, is the one that created that too. Everything in them. You guys have gods for every little thing that's around you. And I understand why you did that. Because you were given a, bit of, a small piece of the puzzle and you created this entire religion out of it. 
Well, let me tell you something about my God. Next verse. He said, um, let's see. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. With the little bit of information you received that you were able to dig up on your own, everybody did their own thing, like you guys did your own thing. Now, in this verse, there's a really interesting thing that I think a lot of people miss. Right here, it says, in the past, he let all nations, all nations. In the Greek, the word all literally means like all, okay? This is, this is controversial, so, you know, if you're going to hurl stones at me, don't, okay? When he says all, he's including his own nation. He's including Israel in it. He's saying, we grew up with the scriptures. God gave us the Old Testament. But that was also a piece of puzzle that we made a whole religion out of. We took what God gave us, which is the laws and the prophets, and we went our own direction, thinking that we were better than everybody else. But Paul is here to say, no, we just received a small piece of the puzzle like you guys received a small piece of the puzzle, and you guys did your own thing, we did our own thing, and we thought we were better than you, and you thought you were better than us. But Jesus came to tell us that we're all equals. Nobody can say that they're better than the other group because everybody was only given a piece of the puzzle. What he's saying is, we got it all wrong. Not just you guys, we did too. That other group over there, somewhere far off in the east, they got it wrong too. That group in the north, they got it wrong. The people in the south, they got it wrong too. We all got it wrong. He let us go our own way in the past. And then in verse 17, he says this. Yet, he, God, has not left himself without testimony. But God is not silent about this. He did say something about it. And the next verse, well, well, blew me away. I don't know if it's going to blow you away, but let's see. Here we go. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from the heaven, crops in their seasons. He provided you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. So if the question that they're asking is this, how big is this story? Paul here is answering that question with these three questions, which is, do you have water? then you have experienced God. Have you eaten food? Then you have experienced God. Have you ever been filled with joy? Then you have experienced God. Paul is saying, I'm not here to bring you my God and say, here, let me introduce you to God. Everybody say hi to Jesus. Jesus say hi to these people. And, and, uh, right. He's not doing that. He's saying, even before I came here, you and your ancestors, you have been experiencing God this whole time. You just didn't know who that was. You just had a small piece of the puzzle. You didn't know who it was. And I'm here to tell you it's Jesus. What he's saying here is this. God's story is bigger than religion. God is bigger than all nations. And God is bigger than any of your categories. As Christians, we will say like, well, okay, you are, you know, God has been with you. you have, you've experienced God if you have said this prayer and you've seen these miracles or if you've been to a Bible study, then you've experienced God. What Paul is teaching here is even if you're outside of that realm, you have already experienced God. We can't be haughty. We can't be full of ourselves to think, well, we've experienced God and you haven't, so we're better than you. You can't say that. What he's saying here is, Everybody has experienced God. There's no, more such, no such thing as us versus them anymore. Yes, your enemy 
has experienced God. And so Paul makes that clear. And he sits down and he's thinking, yep, I made myself very clear there. So they're not going to, you know, they don't think we're Zeus and Hermes anymore. So we're good, right? Well, it turns out in the next few verses, um, the priest is like, no, we still want to sacrifice this bull for you and give you the wreath. And he's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe it. I'm telling you, we are not gods. And then the Jews that were in Iconium that were about to stone them, they show up and they're like, hey guys, we're glad we caught you before Paul poisoned your mind anymore. When they say they're not gods, they're telling the truth. As a matter of fact, they're frauds. You know, like they're trying to mess with your mind. They're, you know, like they're in it for themselves. So here, I brought some stones for you guys. Start throwing at them. And they start stoning Paul and Barnabas. And I think one of them hits their head because he actually falls to the floor. And they thought he was dead. So they carry the body outside and tosses him outside the city of, of Lystra. And then, you know, the people who accept this story, they circle around Paul and they're like, is he really dead? And Paul opens his eyes, he gets up, he's like, whoa, that was close, I almost died, you know? So they're like, okay, you know what? This is not a safe place to be. Let's head over to the next place. So let's get the map again. So from Lystra, they go to the next destination, which is a place called Derby, which is another 30 miles. But I'm sure it took more than a day because he was really hurt. He was probably limping his way there, right? And there isn't much information about about Derby in the scriptures. We don't know much about what happened except that it went well. Right, so maybe he got a lot of people to believe. But it's at this point in the story that I think, okay, this is just me, you know, just guessing, okay, but I think it's at this point that Paul did a little assessment. Like, he created a scorecard, like scoreboard. This is what it will look like. He's like, okay, when when we were in Cyprus, that island, we preached the good news, and that Gentile, remember him? Who was he? Oh yeah, he was the proconsul, yeah. Paulus, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about him? He accepted this message really, really well. He welcomed the message. He embraced it. He said he'll be part of that story. It worked out. But you know who rejected it? That guy sitting next to him, his name, that Jewish guy. Uh, what's his name? Bar Jesus. Yeah. Remember him? He tried to kick us out. Well, what about Pisidian in Antioch? Well, while we were there, um, at first it looked like the Jews were accepting our story, but the next time they arrived, they tried to kill us. But the Gentiles, they were like, oh yeah, we love this story. And then we went to Iconium. Um, they were like, let's stone him. Like, remember they were plotting against us? But the Gentiles were like, oh no, we like what they're teaching. And then when they get to Lystra, well, everything was going well at first until the Iconian um, Jews showed up and they started stoning us and they killed us. Well, almost, right? And we don't know about Derby. We don't know what they did, but we know that you know, the people accepted it. So like, wait a minute, I'm starting to see a pattern here. Like, I think... Um, Maybe the Gentiles like this message more than the Jews, which is weird because when they first started this journey, Paul's thinking, let's go after the low-hanging fruit, which are the Jews. Let's go to all the synagogues and the diaspora and, and you know, preach to them because that's low-hanging fruit. But as it turns out, they're the ones that rejected the message and the Gentiles were the ones that were like, yes, tell us more. So with that in mind, Let's go to the map. They decide to head back to all the cities. So from Derby, they go back to Lystra, then they go back to Iconium, and they go all the way back to Pisidian Antioch. As they're going, they're appointing elders. That's what the scripture says. It says that they're appointing elders. They're like pastors. But pastors aren't people who are above them. Remember, Paul is teaching equality here. So what Paul's doing here is not like, hey, we're going to co- create these roles called elders who are going to be above you guys and tell you how to live out your faith. No, 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 no. 
Paul and Barnabas are appointing people called elders to say, here are the people who are going to help you walk through your journey together. These guys are equal. They're not above you. They're all part of the body of Christ. They're not above you. They're beside you. They're here to nurture you. And they get to Pisidian Antioch where they're doing the same thing because they realize wherever we go, if there's a Jewish presence there, these people's lives might be in danger. You know, we thought this message about inclusion would be received. I mean, who doesn't want that, right? Apparently, there's a group of people who don't want that. So uh, while they're at Pisidian Antioch, this records records for us, they were strengthening, Paul and Barnabas, they were strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to their faith. For those of you Bible nerds, um, the word faith right here in the Greek is the word pistis. And the better translation for the word faith, wherever you see the word faith in the Bible, it's better if you use the word loyalty. Okay, so these people are like, no matter what happens to us, we're going to stay loyal to the mission of God. We're going to continue to break down walls. We're going to continue to love on the people who are not like us, accept people who are on the outside, you know, share equality. Like, he's like, we are like, we're here to encourage you. Stay loyal to what God has called you to do, no matter how many people persecute you. We must go through, wait, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. This journey you're on, following Jesus, loving the people around you, it's going to be tough. It's like, I have the scars to prove it. It's going to be really, really tough. The message of grace is difficult, especially to the people who are tied, their identity is tied to another culture, you know, um, uh, another religion. It's like, it's going to be hard. When you come in and talk about inclusion, the people who found their identity in exclusion, they're the ones that's going to hurt you. So be very careful, but stay loyal to what God has called you to do. After he gave that message, going to the map again, they're like, okay, let's continue going home. So they go south, and they're like, hey, let's stop by over here first, and they get on the boat, and then they go back all the way to their home base, which is over here in Antioch. And thus concludes the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. And so they're probably happy to be home. And when they got home, this is what they saw, really good stuff. They sailed back to Antioch where they had been committed to the grace of God, meaning this is a community of people who are committed to generosity. We talked about this when we first talked about Antioch a few weeks ago. They committed themselves to generosity. Remember the leadership consisted of people of different skin color, um, people who are from all around the world, people of different economic uh, statuses. These people dedicated to making sure that that worked. So when they got back home, he was like, I'm so happy to see this diversity back at home. He says, the grace of God for the work they had now completed. It's like, I can't wait to tell you guys what we just saw. And then we get a little glimpse, a little description of what he said. On arriving there, they gathered uh, the church together and reported all that God has done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Guys, you're not gonna believe me. We went off on this journey trying to talk to the Jews about Jesus totally got shut down, but guess what? There's another door that got opened for us. It's the non-Jews. It's the Gentiles. Well, how do they accept this story? Well, it turns out, you know, we had the question, how, be- how big is this story? It turns out this story is huge. Well, why didn't the Jews accept it? Well, it turns out the story was too big for them. It became a threat to their identity. Apparently, you know, we don't like telling, they don't like hearing stories about Things, how things are open to everything now because remember, they maintain their identity by making sure they stuck to the narrow road, right? And so 
one of the things that, that really popped in my mind when I was reading and studying this passage is this question. Because remember, these Jewish people, they, they, they found their identity in this exclusion, right? But isn't that true for a lot of Christians today? I mean, the question that kept on coming in my mind was this. Are you threatened by the grace of God? I mean, what would happen to you? What, what comes up in your heart when you realize, hey, guess what? God is also with your enemy. Or maybe there's like a person that's like mocking you for going to church. And to hear that God is blessing that person. Does that make you frustrated? Does that, do you feel threatened? Do you feel offended by it? Because that's what happened to the Jews. They were walking with God this whole time, only to find out at the end of the story that following those 500, uh, 500, 600 plus laws, yeah, sure, they thought that was the way that they stayed in contact with God, but there were people on the other side of the globe who weren't given those 600 laws. They lived however they wanted, and God was still in contact with them also. That made him feel probably like cheated. You mean we worked this hard and there are people on the other side of the world who got the same presence of God. They got the food, they got the water, they got the joy that we experienced, we thought through following all your rules. You're telling me that God is blessing them also? You're telling me that, that for centuries now, for 4,000 years, we've excluded people from being a part of our group. And now you're telling me that God wants us to be with everybody else? Like our identity is based in this idea that we are the people of God. Now you're telling me that we're not the only people of God? It was threatening to them. But I think some Christians think the same way today, don't you think? You've been going to church your whole life. You've been trying to live according to the scriptures your whole life. And there's those people who didn't follow the scriptures. There's the people who didn't go to church. And every morning you're like, I don't want to wake up and go to church. But you did it anyways because you thought that's what God demanded of you. Only to find out that God was with the people who didn't come to church. That he was with the people who called themselves atheists. They were, you know, like, they were, you know, like, you're like, what? Like, when I was doing youth ministry about 20 years ago. Yeah, 20 years ago. That was a long time ago. Um, I remember a kid asked me this. He said, oh, I say, she said, so you mean to tell, like, she, she came to this conclusion that, you know, whoever you are, even if you're a mass murderer or if you're a heady park, party drinker or whatever, at the end of your life, you just pray one prayer, then you get to go to heaven. That's what she believed, right? And she's like, wait a minute, that's not fair. I follow all these rules, going to church, and then I get into heaven. That's what she believed. It's not true, you know, but, right? And here is somebody who does whatever he or she wants and at the end of his life just prays this prayer and we end up in the same place. That doesn't seem fair to this person. This idea that God's grace extends to even the people that she doesn't agree with was a threat to her. Are you threatened by the grace of God? Because it was a threat to the Jews 2,000 years ago. Now, this teaching that Paul's teaching, everyone's like, whoa, Paul's kind of going off the end. Like, is Paul teaching heresy here? Because uh, Paul, um, are you sure that the Greeks in Iconium, the Greeks in Lystra and, and Derby, are you sure that God is with them? Like, because didn't, I didn't see them pray the prayer. You know, I don't see them reading the Bible. I don't see them praying to Jesus. Like, are you sure that they're part of the kingdom of God? I mean, is Paul kind of becoming a heretic here? Well, it turns out 
This teaching is not original to Paul. Jesus taught this as well. Matthew chapter 20, there's a parable that he taught that's very interesting here. The kingdom of heaven, which is the kingdom of God, is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers in the vineyard. So wake up at five in the morning. It's still dark outside. I have to work on my garden. Will you come and work for me? How long do I have to work? Until six o'clock. So for 12 hours? Yeah, sure. How much are you gonna pay me? Next slide. He agreed to pay them a denarius, which is a lot, it's a day's wage, for the day, for the entire day and sent them to his vineyard. Off to work you go. For denarii, yes sir, we're gonna go do it. Then, about nine in the morning, he, the, the, the landowner, went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So, they went. He went out again around noon. So we have somebody at six in the morning, then we have nine in the morning, and then we have at noon, right? And about three o'clock, so it's like every three hours in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. So he's like hiring somebody every three hours and then finally at five o'clock, next slide. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? I don't know, I don't have a job. Well, in that case, because they said, no one has hired us, they answered. So he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. So he's hiring somebody every few hours, right? And then when evening came, that's like six o'clock, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the ones, the last ones hired, going on to the first. So the people who hired at five o'clock, he's like, why don't you come here and uh, we'll pay you first, all the way to the first. It's like, He's trying to make a point here or something, right? Next slide. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. Wait a minute. I thought the person who were hired in the morning, 12 hours before, they were the ones who were supposed to get a denarius. But these guys get a denarius? So when those came, oh, back. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more because that's fair, don't you think? Right? They worked 12 hours longer, they should get more, right? Next slide. But each one of them also received a denarius. <gasps> when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Hey, that's not fair. Next slide, this is what they said. These who were hired last worked only one hour. They said, and you have made them equal to us. Like making the people who didn't work as hard to be equal to the people who worked really, really hard doesn't seem fair to us. Why are you making us equals to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day? We work through the hottest time of the day and you're paying us exactly the same? They are threatened with this idea that these people who don't deserve, who didn't follow the same rules as the first people, the first people to be hired, that they are treated as equal as them. And everybody here would probably agree with that and say, yeah, that doesn't sound fair. But the landowner, he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for Denarius? It's like, don't compare yourself to the people around you. If you compare yourself to the people around you, then it's unfair. But if you stick to my relationship with you, this is what we agreed on. So to, between us, it's fair. 
between you two, it may not be fair, but between us, it's fair, right? So he says, take your pay and go. I want to give the one who, has hired, who was hired less the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? Are you threatened by my generosity? Are you threatened because of my grace? Are you threatened because I'm a good person? Are you threatened because I give things to people that you don't think deserve things? And then he ends the parable by saying this. Jesus is not telling the story anymore. He's telling you the lesson. So the last will be first and the first will be last. What he's saying here is this. When God is generous, when God is filled with grace, life is not fair. When you compare yourselves to the people around you, life is not fair. But I went to church and gave and I did all these things for my entire life and you're telling me that guy over there, like, who, who happened to be drinking and being enjoying, like, that person has the same access to the kingdom of God as I do? That's not fair. God's like, yeah, I'm extending my grace to that guy over there. And apparently that's a threat to you. But keep in mind, your relationship is with me. Don't compare yourself with that person. When I am generous, when I show grace, things look unfair because being kind to other people is exactly that, unfair. If you're looking for a fair life, you're not gonna find it here, not in the kingdom of God. People always get things that they don't deserve in the kingdom of God. So the question, we're gonna go back to the original question here. There's two questions. First is, how big is this story? How big is this God? Is this story confined to what's in Israel? When Paul went on his first, his first missionary journey, he came back and said, guys, this story is huge. It is enormous. The second question is, are you threatened by the grace of God? When God is nice to people, when God gives people things that they don't deserve, that you feel like you actually worked for, are you threatened by it? Do you push people away from the kingdom of God? But, 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 I abstained from this for my entire life. And God would say, I'm glad you did that. I told you to do that. That was our agreement. It's good for you. It's wise for you to abstain from those things. But what about that person? Don't worry about that person. That person has an agreement with me, just, be, you know, and that person might be in a different context than you. But God, I, you know, I denied so many things that I really wanted and I thought I was doing it for you. It's like, you were. And I'm glad that you did that for me. But how come that, no, 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 don't look at that person. It is not our place to judge other people on how they come into the kingdom of God. All that ca God cares about is that they are a part of the kingdom of God. As you guys know, this, this whole series of the book of Acts is called Fitting In. You know, and the little subtitle here is all misfits, all misfits Belong Here. As Paul goes on this journey, he discovers the story of God is huge. And he sees these people where just a few years ago, they would not belong in the kingdom of God. But he experienced Jesus. And Jesus seems to keep widening the scope 
First, it was a bunch of law-abiding Jews. And according to what Paul just taught, he says the Jews only had a small idea of what God was really like. And when Jesus showed up, they realized that God is bigger than the law. Then he goes to some Greek civilizations here and there, and he discovers these guys got another sliver of God. They believe that God created the heavens and the earth, but they just mistakenly thought that there was one God for each of the things that God created. He's like, yeah, you were close, but you were off. But God has been with you all along. And God has been speaking to these people differently than he was talking, speaking to these people over here. But now that Jesus is here, he says, now I am the only way. I have finally revealed who I really am, and now I'm going to tell you that without going through me, you will not experience the kingdom of God. And that's the covenant he has with us. And different people are going to come to the kingdom of God in different ways, and it's not our place to judge them for how they come into the kingdom of God. The bottom line here is we're just happy that they are because they've experienced the grace and the generosity of Jesus. Amen? All right, let's pray.